first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. This week, I'm joined by Joanna Harper. Joanna is a trans athlete, a trans researcher, a trans scientist, and has been in the conversations with the International Olympic Committee, uh, along with many, many others, as they, over the last few years, have tried to forge a trans inclusion policy. When the IOC released their latest policy back in 2016, Joanna was there in Europe in the conversations presenting her findings uh, and her experiences about trans athletes and as a trans athlete. And it was in large part because of Joanna's work that the IOC removed the mandate for surgery to compete in the Olympic Games. She has continued to be engaged with the IOC about their trans inclusion policy. We talked to her about that. I talked to her about what trans athletes she's looking uh, for as we learn who is going to be competing in the Olympic Games this year in Tokyo. She believes that we are going to see the first ever out trans athlete competing in the uh, Olympic Games this year. And she very well may be right. If she's right, it will be in part because of her work. Anyhow, here is my conversation with Joanna Harper. I'm thrilled to be joined this week, as you know, by Joanna Harper, who has been, gosh, a a trailblazer for trans athletes and LGBTQ athletes for many years. She is the author of an important book called Sporting Gender. Um, uh, Joanna... You know, give people a little background on yourself as an athlete, because you are not just a a thought leader in this space and you're not just a researcher in this space. You are an athlete. So kind of tell tell us about your just your your background in sports. Well, the truth is I'm an old athlete right now. But (laughs) um, when I was young, I I ran a 223 marathon, which is, is a pretty good time, of course. You know, I was running in the men's division back then. And, and you know, it, it put me among the top 20 male, uh, quote unquote, male runners in Canada at the time. So, you, you know, I, I was pretty good, but I was never going to make a living from it. Uh, I, I certainly knew that uh, I was going to make a living with my mind rather than my legs. And, you know, I, I still compete. And um, as an old lady, um, my running club out of Portland, Oregon, had a couple pretty good years in uh, 2017, 2018, where we won several um, age group national championships, and, and that was a, a fun couple of years. Um, and so, but you're still you're still getting out there and running, um, just maybe not quite as competitively as you did 
you, you, all those years ago? Yeah, not quite as competitively. I still run pretty much every day. I still race. Um, you know, I've run three cross. I, I, I moved to England a few months ago, and I've I've run three cross country races since I got here. And I, I won my age group in two out of the three. And and there's some pretty good runners here. And you know, uh, so I, I I still do the best I can. So your book, Sporting Gender, and the subtitle is The History, Science, and Stories of Transgender and Intersex Athletes. I know some of what we're going to talk about is is in this book. And by the way, I very much appreciate a little a brief mention in the book. That's very nice of you. But one of the, one of the stories that is of most interest and in, in where I like just I jumped right to was that 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 meeting and Lausanne. And I'm curious. Um, just kind of how did you end up working with the IOC? How did you end up in that place? It's, it started in 2014. I was, um, two things. I, I was doing research for what would become the book at, at that time. And I was also trying to get this paper published on, uh, on race times for trans uh, gender distance runners. Uh, and, and so it, it was during that time that uh, an American uh, academic named Alice Drager put me in touch with Arnie Lundquist, who's uh, been who, at the forefront of, of these issues since the 1980s. And, um, you know, Arnie was, was quite receptive, and, and especially once he found out that I had this data on transgender athletes that no one else in the world had. So, um, so it was Arnie that, that got me uh, into that meeting. For those of you who don't know, in uh, 2015, the IOC convened a meeting and to talk about the, the uh, Olympic trans inclusion policy. And Joanna was part of those meetings. Uh, Joanna, just kind of give us give us an idea of what it was like being in that room, kind of how you how you felt things were going in the in the room with the conversations, and and also kind of your um, your perspective on 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 your your um, your happiness with where they where they landed. Well, um, you know, to give people some background, in two thousand and four, the IOC first permitted. Um, transgender athletes to compete in the Olympics. But, but at that time, they required surgery and two years of post-surgical hormones, plus legal changes for transgender women. And, and those are all difficult hurdles um, and unnecessary hurdles, in fact. Um, and I began my hormonal transition in 2004. And by 2005, I knew that, that, that they'd gotten the rules wrong. Uh, and why did you know by, why did you know within a year that they'd gotten it wrong? Because within nine months of starting on hormone therapy, I was running 12% slower. And that's the difference between serious male athletes and serious female athletes. So clearly surgery wasn't required. And also two years of hormones weren't required. Uh, and, and then of course, legal changes shouldn't hold one back. So, so all three of those changes were uh, requirements were problematic, um, and, and you know by 2005 I knew that, but I certainly wasn't in a position to to do anything about it. Um, but by 2015, I think it had become 
clear to a lot of people that surgical changes weren't necessary and then were in fact a, a breach of human rights to, to require surgery for, you know, to compete in, in sports is, is clearly not within, uh, you know, within the scope of, of what is, is a right thing to do to another human being. And, and so, you know, I was pretty certain going into those meetings that the surgical requirement would go away. I was far less certain that the legal requirement would go away. But, um, you know, as it turned out, people were very receptive to change in the meeting. And so how, how did the meeting go? What were the conversations that, that you had, I know that if you can, God, just bring us into the kind of behind the scenes. And I, again, you do that great in the book. Just kind of give us like a, a little preview of, of the story that you tell in the book. Sure. Um, you know, th there were uh, a, a lot of social meetings. And, and I had, uh, again, because I had researched this book, I had, uh, you know, I had reached out to a lot of the people who were going to be in the room. I had met a few of them before this meeting. Um, and in fact, I came from the home of Maria Jose Martinez Patino, uh, a famous intersex athlete, uh, uh, to this meeting. And, and Maria and I traveled together to the meeting. So, you know, I, I had a chance uh, the night before the meeting to, 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 to sit down and talk with, with many of the people who were going to be there. And, and I, you know, I had some sort of idea of, of how things would go. Um, certainly with regard to surgery. Um, but I, I, I was very pleasantly surprised that, uh, that a number of people, uh, in addition to myself, questioned the necess necessity for, for legal changes. Because in, in many parts, in fact, in probably most parts of the world, it's extraordinarily difficult or even impossible for transgender people to change their, their legal status. And, and so, you know, that, that's a huge barrier. And, um, you know, I was really, really nervous um, because I was allowed, I don't know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, something like that, to do a PowerPoint presentation. And, and I'm pretty good with PowerPoint presentations. But, you know, this is the IOC, and I was probably the first trans person ever to speak before the IOC. So, you know, I was pretty nervous, but the talk went well, and uh, it, it became clear as the meeting wore on that, that people were receptive to both me and to my ideas. So you really went into the meeting with the main focus being to uh, eliminate the surgical requirement and to eliminate the, the legal recognition requirement. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I was also hoping that the hormone period could come down from two years to one year, uh, which was certainly a, a more reasonable uh, time frame. And, and in fact, all three of those things happened. So, you know, I, I was very happy with the outcome of the meeting. Was there anything that that you wish had been in the new policy that wasn't included? You know, the, the question of, of where to set the testosterone limit um, was, was always going to be uh, an issue, and, 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 and certainly it was. Um, and, and I don't know if, if that could have been handled uh, um, better in that meeting. And, and, and it's a, a fairly complex issue, um, first of all, you know, there's been talk that, 
Well, but bringing it from 10 to five makes it, it uh, more restrictive on, on trans women, but it doesn't really because 95% of trans women uh, who are on hormone therapy are under two nanomoles per liter. So what difference does it make whether you said that 10 or at five to, you know, to 95% of the trans women? Um, but there was a, a lot of focus on this. And, and, and eventually, a couple of years after this, there was a, a meeting where we did bring it from 10 to 5, or at least our recommendations were to do that. And there were a lot of hard feelings around the, this later meeting, and perhaps it, it could have been minimized if, if we had dealt with it up front in 2015 instead of pushing it off till later. When you say there are hard feelings, what do you mean by that? Well, in particular, there's a, a one guy, um, Eric Belen, who uh, is a dear friend of mine, but, you know, um, <laughs> Eric is, is headstrong and has an ego. Uh, and, you know, that certainly doesn't make him the only person in that room with those, those qualities. But, um, but as it turned out, he was unable to be present for the later meeting in 2016 when, when we first talked about bringing it down. Uh, and, and the fact that, that he wasn't there and, and then this, uh, you know, became this momentum to, to move the, the limit from 10 to five, uh, it, it really created some very hard feelings with Eric and, and some of the other people in there. And, and I really regret that, as I say, because I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for Eric. And, and and I wish it could have happened differently. It's interesting with the 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 level five ten animals per liter. Um, you know, some some trans athletes I talk to say five is ridiculous. That at that level we're we're destroying our bodies. And then other most of the trans women in sports I talk to agree with you. They say my level is like under one, so they can put it wherever they want. Uh, it, it's we're all way under five. So did you get some pushback from the trans community that you've gone too far? Or was that just a really small percentage of people? There, the, yeah, there are, you know, there are absolutely people in, in, in the trans community who, who feel that, you know, reducing that level uh, is, you know, is an un unacceptable thing. And, and that, and, and many, you know, people in the trans community feel that trans women should be able to carry as much testosterone as, as they want. Uh, but as you say, most, most athletes keep their testosterone under two or even under one. Uh, and it's a non-issue for, for most, but, but there is certainly a significant minority who feel very, uh, very strongly that uh, that these limits shouldn't be in place, and by reducing the limit, you make it even worse. Science will tell you that the testosterone level is obviously not the only driver uh, toward um, athletic excellence. Why is that the number that every policy, or the, at least the IOC policy? has focused on? Well, it, it's important to, to note that the IOC policy still dates from 20, the 2015 meeting. They have not revised their policy. Uh, 
And so it's unclear what the IOC will or, or won't do for the 2020 Olympics. I, I'm reasonably certain they will come up with a new policy. Um, I, I'm not certain when they will announce it or, or what the, the policy will be. But, um, but several other organizations have moved from 10 to 5. And, and there are a couple of reasons. One, the, the, most, uh, the most dominant or most important um, measurement technique has changed. It, um, there used to be, 10 years ago, there was a method called immunoassay, which is still the method that's used if you go to your doctor's office. That, that's what they'll test your testosterone with. But um, at some point in, in the middle of the uh, decade, um, all scientific people move to a different technique. It's called mass spectrometry, and, and it's much more accurate for testosterone measurements. And the old 10 in immunoassay is now about seven and a half using mass spectrometry. So, so since every all the scientific organizations switched to mass spectrometry, to, to make an equivalent testosterone limit, it would have to come down from 10 to seven and a half anyway. So, so that would necessarily change if, if one moves from immunoassay to mass spectrometry. But, but then uh, that, uh, that change also wound up creating a, a harder look at, at where one would set that limit. And, and there were a number of factors, but, but one of the most important is that uh, there's a condition in cisgender women uh, called polycystic ovary syndrome, um, where there are multiple cysts on the ovaries and, and it causes the ovaries to produce more testosterone than typical. Uh, and, and women with PCOS uh, often have two or three and maybe as much as four nanomoles per liter. And, and women with PCOS are overrepresented in sports. Um, but, but the advantage that they have from this two or three or four nanomoles per liter is, is really a small advantage. And nobody would, would try you know, to, to regulate that. And so if you're not going to regulate uh, a cis woman with four nanomoles per liter, then, and then certainly the very lowest limit you could have for trans women would be about four. Um, and, and so where between four and seven and a half do you settle? Well, you know, five's kind of a round number. And, and it was debated ad nauseum in the group. Uh, but but that was the consensus that, that it would be set at five. It's, it's amazing because as I talked to so many people who have who have made the claim that um, the, these these levels of five and ten are just randomly selected and there's no real thought behind it, no reasoning, and it's just so refreshing to talk to somebody who's been in the conversation and can tell us the reasoning behind the decisions and the level. Yeah, you know, certainly any limit that you pick is, is, is to a certain extent arbitrary. But um, one of, the, one of the, the leading voices in the room was an Australian endocrinologist named uh, David Handelsman. And in 2018, he published this extensive review. Uh, you know, he said he spent like 150 hours on this. Uh, and it's a very impressive paper to read. And, and certainly one of the things 
that, that he does in this paper is lay out an argument for why five is, is the best number to pick. And, um, you know, David is, 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 is such an incredible uh, academic that, you know, that, that's an impressive argument. And it's certainly not the only argument. And, and believe me, there was a lot of disagreement. But, but as a group, you know, you have to come to some consensus and our group settled on five. Well, everybody, hang tight. We're going to break for a commercial here and we will be right back with Joanna Harper. Okay, we're back with Joanna Harper, author of Sporting Gender. Joanna, where can people uh, pick up Sporting Gender? Where, do they, where can they get it online? Um, well, Amazon. Uh, my publisher, Roman and Littlefield, would probably prefer that you order it through them. But, uh, but I assume most people will just order it through Amazon. Uh, well, it is, a, it is a fantastic read, and people interested in, in trans policy and, and, how, and the, the role of gender in sports definitely pick up a copy of this book. Um, Joanna, talk to us about some of the current research that you're doing, because I know with, as, I mean, the, the, this is one of the hottest topics in sports, and, and I know that you are engaged right now in some, in some research into the topic, so kind of tell us what you're up to. Well, as I mentioned, in, in 2015, I published this paper that was a retrospective look at, at race times of, of transgender women and how using a specific metric, we were no more competitive after transition than we had been before. And, and this was actually the very first quantitative uh, research published on, on transgender athletes. And, and I knew at the time that the, the there was no, nothing else like this out in the literature. But I, I didn't think that much of it. But this paper got published, and then my whole life changed. At the time, I was working in healthcare in the United States, and you know, pretty happily so. But, but after this paper got published, and, and then you know, the, the IOC changed the regulations, and, and I got wrapped up in all this, and, and this, this gender and sports stuff just wound up taking more and more of my time. Um, and I wanted to, to extend this research more. And I did collect uh, in the uh, years after that more data. But in order to do a larger perspective study, which is, is sort of a, a much, much more important standard than gathering retrospective uh, data, you have to have exercise physiologists at a university uh, combined with endocrinologists at a gender clinic, uh, which is where you're going to get the, the, the subjects. And uh, starting in like 2017, 2018, I started to reach out to various universities and say, look, you know, this can be done. This is what you need to do. And, and I couldn't find um, any university that, that was really that interested in it. Um, but then in, in 2019, or sorry, 2018, I was contacted actually by a couple of universities in England. And, and one of them, Loughborough University, is, is where I wound up uh, going. And, and um, they are one of the number one sports science universities in the world. And they're only 20 miles away from one of the largest gender clinics in the world, too. So it's a great fit. Uh, and so in September, I quit my uh, high-paying job 
to come over to England and be a poor PhD student here. Um, and I'm just, this idea of, of spending the next 10 years of my life doing this research was just so attractive that I, I just couldn't resist. What's so attractive about it? <laughs> well, um, the idea of, of getting trans athletes into the lab, into the exercise lab, and, and this is a world-class exercise lab, you bring them in, you take measurements, and then you see what happens to them as they transition. Um, you know, to anyone who's interested in science and sports and transgender issues, this is a golden opportunity. And I'm going to be right at the center of it. So um, it, it appeals to the, the three things in me which, which are most defining. The fact that I'm a scientist, the fact that I'm an athlete, the fact that I'm transgender. And so uh, it, it, it just it just blew my mind that this opportunity opened up. Well, we hear over and over again, one of the criticisms of trans inclusion policies in sports is, oh, this is all based on nothing. There's no, there are no research, there are no actual studies. And so it's amazing to hear you describe what your study is, because like you said, we are actually, instead of trying to piece together different pieces of research on this part of the topic and that part of the topic, you are looking at the entire topic, the entire puzzle, all in one place. Yeah, and, and, and I should point out that while I'm doing this research, there are other people in the group who um, are, are looking at other aspects. There's, there's another PhD student who's specifically looking at transgender policies. There are uh, another two or three who are looking at some of the sociological aspects of transgender athletes. So, so we're looking at this from a broad perspective. Um, and, you know, I, I'm the exercise physiology person in the group, but, but, but it is a, a broad-based group looking at, at um, you know, what can be done about transgender athletes. And, and it's an exciting group to be a part of. I know you're only six months into this, and I'm sure this is even a stupid question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So bear with me. Uh, is there is there anything that you've learned so far, or is it just simply it's just too short of a time? You know, the research is, is doesn't actually move that fast. The, the first thing that you have to do is you have to get the university to say, that your research project is approved. And, and that actually takes usually two or three months. So um, we didn't get approval uh, until very early in January, um, but we did get our first uh, trans athlete into the lab later in January. Um, she's a teaching professional golfer here in England. Um, and so, um, we got her in, into the lab and did uh, some typical exercise tests. But also, because she's a golfer, there's uh, a biomechanical golf lab in the university. And, and they brought her in, and, and it was fairly amazing to see. They, you know, they have all these 
cameras in the room to watch her movements and they hooked all these monitors up onto her body. She had like a hundred little tabs on her body that all the cameras could watch as she swung the club and then she had force plates she was standing on and so she's hitting balls into a screen while they're monitoring all these things about about her swing and it was a fairly incredible thing to watch. Um, but she has yet to start on hormone therapy that that should come in in the coming weeks and then we'll see what happens with her over the next couple of years but but it'll be two years before we get data on her and she's the first one and, and so um you know it's a process and it'll take a while given that it's going to be a couple of years before you or really anybody else has any real data on this kind of thing are people who are creating trans policies and sports just kind of shooting in the dark right now? What what should they be thinking about as they are creating policy? You know, there there are a, a number of things. There there are uh, several studies that have been done on non transgender athletes, and, and and those are of some value. Um, the the study that I published and, and the further data that I have gathered are of some value, but but there are you know uh, also you can look at what has happened with uh, you know with some of the most prominent trans athletes in the world, and I'll just mention one here. Uh, her name is Hannah Mountsey, and she's a handball player in Australia, and you know Hannah's a big girl. Uh, she's um, uh, 6'2", 220 pounds, uh, and she dropped 30, 40 pounds of muscle with, with her transition, but she's still a lot bigger and a lot stronger than the women she plays against. And she was a member of the Australian men's handball team. And, you know, I talked to an exercise physiologist who was a competitive handball player, and, and she said, well, you know, Hannah's going to be unstoppable in the women's game. And Hannah first played for the Australian team in the 2018 Asian Championships. And, you know, Hannah was successful, but she was the third leading scorer for the Australian team. And the Australian team was fifth out of the 10 teams in the tournament. So, you know, here you have somebody who's big and strong and very successful in the sport beforehand. Uh, and she's slightly more successful in the sport after her transition, but she's not dominating the game. And, and you know, she's, an outlier in, in many ways, and still she wasn't dominating women's sport uh, in, in her sport. And so I, I think things like that are, are very important and it helps align the fears, you know, people, oh, you know, trans athletes are gonna take over women's sports. Well, if Hannah Mouncey can't take over women's handball, then, then you know, this notion that, that trans women will take over women's sports clearly is not well-founded. As we look ahead to the Olympics this year, you mentioned that the IOC is likely to hand down a new trans policy. What do you think is going to change from its 2016 policy? Um, I would really prefer not to speculate publicly. Oh. Um, I, I can tell you um, that uh, the IOC had at least two meetings in, in 2019. There was a meeting in June that I was invited to, and we all signed an, uh, an NDA 
So uh, I can't tell you what happened in the meeting, but I can tell you what didn't happen is we didn't reach consensus on anything in the meeting. Um, they had a second meeting in October, uh, and I wasn't invited to that. I do know some people who were invited and, and they signed NDAs. So again, I can't really talk too much about what happened there. Uh, I, I have an idea where they're probably going to go, but but I, I don't want to speculate publicly. Sure. Uh, uh, but one of the one of the things, and, and it's actually something you and I talked about electronically a couple of years ago, uh, is that, um, you know, the physical attributes that, that trans women have uh, compared to cis women differ from sport to sport. And, and so, you know, trans women are, are obviously taller and, and bigger. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are many other physical attributes that are important in sport. And, and so uh, it probably makes sense to rather than lean on the IOC, to have sport by sport regulations. And, and that's actually what's starting to happen. Uh, and, and there have been uh, meetings over the past few months and, and next week, in fact, I'm going to the World Rugby Association uh, or meeting where they're having uh, two, days of, <laughs> two days of meetings about trans athletes and what rugby specific regulations they want to have. And then this is at the international sport level um, but where the rubber really meets the road is, is nationally. Um, and, and it's the, the national sports federations that actually choose the teams. Uh, and so, you know, this idea of just relying on the IOC for guidance is, is perhaps a, a little outdated. And, and um, I think the fact that the IOC has not yet released their regulations for, for 2020 is, is perhaps indicative that they may want to be holding back and, and, and letting these other federations, uh, you know, take the lead just a little bit on, on creating uh, policy. Well, yeah, it, it makes no sense to me that you'd have the uh, same policy in rugby as you would in curling. And, and I, you know, I've, I've started to wonder, Joanna, and I know people, you know, some people are afraid of allowing each sport to create its own policy. But I've started honestly wondering, Joanna, if, and I know this scares the heck out of people, but it almost needs to be an individual by individual policy. And I know that that scares people, but different, the, 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 every person is different and unique. And it's it's so hard to apply the same policy to someone who's seven feet tall and 300 pounds to someone who's five foot six and 120. And is, is, is that just a, a crazy, stupid idea that leaves way too much to the imagination? No, I, I, I don't think so at all. I, I'm not sure it's, it's workable, but, um, you know, I, I think in, in many cases, uh, you know, a case-by-case -case decision is, is not necessarily an unreasonable thing to do. Um, you know, there certainly are problems with that. In, in many countries, of course, if, if you just 
say, well, it's a case by case decision, then in every single case, they're going to say, well, no, the trans person can't compete at all because they wouldn't allow any trans person to compete. And, and so there is that danger. But, um, but yeah, there's, you know, this idea that all trans women are bigger and stronger than all cis women is, of course, simply not true. Uh, and there is a validity to looking at a case-by-case -case basis, um, but you know, I have some concerns on that on a uh, on specifically a national level because there are so many countries in the world where a case-by-case -case decision would be a no every time. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great point. Um, again, one last thing, just headed into Tokyo Olympics on the back of your book. Uh, you say the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games are likely to feature the first transgender athlete. You talk about Laurel Hubbard, Tiffany Abro. Months after writing that, do you still think we're likely to see a transgender athlete in the Tokyo Olympics? And who would that be? Who do you, who do you have your eyes on? Um, Laurel Hubbard is is the the logical choice. Uh, and certainly has the highest probability. Of course, no one is guaranteed an Olympic spot at, at this point. We're still six months out. Um, but Laurel was sixth in the World Championships last year in uh, Olympic-style weightlifting. Uh, and they take the uh, IOC takes 14 women in each weight category. Uh, they have, if you look at the qualifications, uh, it's a fairly complex thing, and, and Laurel would need to have one more good performance between now and the end of April uh, in order to qualify for the Olympics. But but she certainly has a better than 50-50 chance of uh, of making it to the Olympics. Uh, and, you know, being that she was sixth in the World Championships last year, she's got an outside shot at winning a medal. Um, Tiffany... Yeah. Uh, and and uh, in Brazil, of course, many sports stars are known by a single name, and, and Tiffany is one of them. Uh, uh, Tiffany is good enough to make the Brazilian Olympic team, but many of her teammates don't want her on the team. And, and so it's questionable whether she'll be named, not because she's not good enough, but, you know, but unfortunately, because of the prejudice that, that many people feel towards trans athletes. And I'd love to see Tiffany in the game. She's a wonderful human being. She's um, one of my favorite trans people that, you know, that I've interacted with, even though we haven't personally met. Um, and it would, be, it would be a dream come true if, if Tiffany could be in the Olympics. And if she does make it to the, the games, she is going to be a medal favorite because Brazil has such a strong women's volleyball team. But sure. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not overly hopeful because I, I just don't think her national team will name her. Well, I end every interview with uh, two questions. And I'm going to skip one because I know that you're not a big Lord of the Rings fan, which is <laughs> fine. I won't hold that against you. Um, but I do want to ask you, uh, who is an Olympian from the past, and you can certainly name more than one, who has inspired you? You know, being that I'm a distance runner, uh, I, I, I found the, the victory by Joan Benoit Samuelson in the 1984 women's marathon to be, uh, you know, to be a, a wonderful inspiration 
Um, and, you know, so from my sport, uh, Joan would, would be, you know, right near the top. Uh, I, I'm also, you know, as an LGBT person, I'm, you know, certainly interested in LGBT athletes. And while Megan Rapinoe's biggest claim to fame was from the World Cup last year, she's also done pretty well in the Olympics, and, and she would be somebody I, I would greatly admire, too. Well, those are a couple couple great picks. I can't disagree with either of those. Um, well, I, Joanne, I just want to thank you again. Uh, the, the, the book is Sporting Gender, the History, Science, and Stories of Transgender and Intersex Athletes. Um, head to Amazon or the Roman and Littlefield uh, website, but uh, you know, I, I, I like to send people to Amazon because it gets the Amazon ranking up. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that's always nice. So, um, head over there, get the book. It really is uh, interesting, just absolutely packed. You you will finish this book with a greater, much greater understanding of trans athletes and and policies. Anyhow, Joanna, thank you again for joining me, and and please let us know what you're up to next. Okay, thanks for having me, Sid. Again, head over to Amazon.com and pick up a copy of Sporting Gender, the history, science, and stories of transgender and intersex athletes. It really is a great read. Uh, Joanna is an interesting writer. And if you want to know about this this topic, uh, there are, well, there's nobody better to read than Joanna. There are certainly people who have different perspectives. And it's it's I think it's important to constantly uh, educate yourself with those different perspectives but Joanna uh, has a a strong history of really uh, insightful thought on this topic and it's just such a pleasure to talk to her and I would not be surprised if I have her back later on this summer as we approach the Olympic Games. All right well that's all I have this week. Come on back next week and we will talk to you then. Mm